0: Do you know the risk factors for type 2 diabetes? Or what makes it more likely you or someone in your life might have the disease? With type 2 diabetes playing a growing role in the lives of so many, you need to know. And Project Power, a community program from the American Diabetes Association, is here to help. Take our risk test today at diabetes.org projectpower project power. You can avoid the risks of type 2. Project Power will help. The need is really huge. There are kids waiting for um, someone to advocate for them about what's best for them um, within the child protection system.
1: The voice you just heard was Monica Staley. Monica is a volunteer guardian at litem and court appointed special advocate. In this capacity, she advocates for the best interests of children who've been abused, neglected, and placed in the child protection system. It's challenging, rewarding, and important volunteer work. Monica's work she does for a living is as a wellness coach and yoga instructor. I think you're really gonna enjoy this episode. It's a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and Monica really brings forth the information that will let you know how important this is. Ladies and gentlemen, Monica Staley.
0: So here in the state of Minnesota, which is where I live, we um, call the volunteer work that I do guardian ad litem. Um, In some states, it's CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocacy. Um, And in this capacity, I, on a volunteer basis, um, support and advocate for kiddos in Child protection. So um, it's for me, it's volunteer. And at least the most I can speak is for the in the state of Minnesota, we've got a handful of staffed guardians, we call them. Um, But as a volunteer, I really get to know these kids um, that come into child protection for a variety of reasons. Um, Get to know my clients and The guardian ad litem program is all about safe, suitable, permanent housing for these kids in our community.
1: So what got you into this? What was the motivation for you to start really uh, spending time volunteering, doing it?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. So back 10 years ago when I was 25, I read a book called My Sister's Keeper. Um, Have you heard of that book?
1: Uh, I'm pretty sure I've. Wasn't there a movie?
0: About I think it so. too?
1: Yeah, I, I think watched so. the movie. It was very uh, moving, extremely. Yeah, moving.
0: yeah. So um, I read the book, and I mean, moving is the perfect word. I was, I was completely captured by two characters in this in the book in the movie. And before I get into it, the difference between my sister's keeper and the work that I do is my sister's keeper is based in family law court. Um, And what um, we do as guardians ad litem is in juvenile court. So the difference is I'm working with kids who have been abused or neglected, and that's why they are what we call in the system. Um, But in my sister's keeper, There's this family, and um, one of the sisters is what you'd consider call a a vulnerable adult. And um, without getting too much into the details, um, her sister, the vulnerable adult sister, had just this absolute fierce sense of love and compassion and advocacy for really creating the best life that her sister could possibly have. And there's this whole dynamic where the parents have this point of view, and the and the sister, who is the what, who becomes the guardian ad litem for her vulnerable adult sister, is just not in agreement with what their parents are saying is what's best for her. And the judge allows um, the sister to be the guardian ad litem and to really, again, advocate for you know what's what's best and just give her sister the best life possible. And I just was so moved by that selfless totally just gritty sense of compassion and advocacy. And so I started looking into it. And at the time I was a um, full-time paralegal. So I wasn't going to be taking on um, the guardians and light light in family court are as a paid position of paid, usually full-time, but right. I came across the volunteer work and, and I looked into it and I was at a point in my career where um I felt like I could take on more responsibility, something that was going to take a little bit of time, certainly some um, heart investment, and uh, looked into the training and just pretty much um, leaned right into it and learned all I could. The training um, was really thorough, very interesting. Uh, learned about things that I had never had any exposure to um, in my personal life. Um, and so that's My Sister's Keeper, the book. That's how, that's how I got to know what it was. And then a little good old Google search showed me um, you know, what I could do from where I was.
1: It's interesting. I, I remember watching that movie and thinking, man, this is just so um, hard to watch. Like, Mm -hmm. it was just really gripping and moving and stirring. And it just had all the emotions that you could feel about another person uh, for it. So what were some of the interesting things that you said you learned that, you know, maybe hadn't been a part of your life or you weren't aware of that were like, wow, this is very, very different, you know?
0: Oh, sure. I mean, I grew up in a city in the Minneapolis metropolitan area um, that a lot of people consider as a a wealthy culture community. Um, And that's certainly not to say that there's not wealthy kids in child protection, but I just had no idea that there were even families or kids around me that were experiencing um, abuse. Uh, I, I really... I thought I knew that that existed. Of course, I mean, just media. Growing up, you you know that that exists, but I always just thought it was somewhere else. You know, maybe maybe downtown Minneapolis, maybe downtown Saint Paul. You know, more more in the city. Um, and it turns out, um, you know, abuse doesn't discriminate. <laughs> it's something that. Every demographic deals with because um, abuse exists in humanity, and humanity is obviously everywhere. Um, so I just I learned about what people are going through, what some people are going through in different, um, just different areas of their life, and also geographically. I mean, just because you live somewhere that's you know seemingly safe and even even beautiful does not mean that there's, you know, not people in pain um, physically and emotionally. And you know some of those people being kiddos. Um, I learned the effects of um, chemical dependency. I learned a lot about um, just like, you know, mental issues, mental health, um, and I learned about families, obviously, I just had my own experience, uh, my family. Um, but I learned more about the dynamic of humans with different personalities, even if they're related under the same roof and, and what can happen, especially when you've got chemical dependency and mental health issues and, um, lots of other variables, um, affecting how someone lives.
1: So how did you, when you were going through this and you were learning, what were your thoughts related to helping? Did it alter your feelings about helping, strengthen your feelings? What take me through that process?
0: Mm, That's a good question. That's a good question. Okay, so again, here I am, 25 years old, um, going through this training. um, And there's probably... I don't know, 20, 20, 25 other um, volunteers getting trained. And we hear about, you know, people take this training to add it to resumes, to, um, you know, get to the next step in some sort of judicial space or some board they want to be on. This is a stepping stone a lot of people don't take seriously and use it for something else. And when I heard that, um, I mean, I was like, Seriously, <laughs> I I I was um, kind of viscerally reacted to that. I thought that that was pretty darn awful. Um, and as I, you know, to really answer your question, the more I learned, the more I was like, okay, what can I do? What can I do, just myself, to make someone's life better, make someone's life safer, let a child know that they are heard that I'm interested in them and that I want, you know, they deserve love. They deserve safety um, and they deserve, they deserve family.
1: So what were the next steps after you were exposed to that? I mean, like, were you thinking like, Hey, how do I jump into this quickly or were you thinking this is going to be kind of a long-term process or even like, did you, th- how long did you think you'd end up doing something like this? <laughs>
0: I don't know that I was thinking I'd still be doing it in 10 years. <laughs>
1: yeah, right, right.
0: Um, but the way, at least um, at the time, and here in Minnesota, that the training was, um, you got your first case while you were still in training, so you had, you know, the support of your peers, the guardian ad litem system. Um, here in Minnesota, I've got, I still have a mentor, so there's lots of support, Um And I had some exposure of courtrooms being a paralegal, but I don't think that that really offered me much because I'd never been, you know, the one speaking, never been the one opining in, in a courtroom. Um, so I leaned in pretty heavily to my coordinator, to my, originally we, we get a mentor as well, another, um, guardian volunteer and, I just kind of took it one step at a time. My first case, um, my client was eight weeks old and his mom was 16 years old. And um, I just learned, you know, you get what we call discovery. Uh, It's more often than not now it's electronic, but at the time it was, you know, a stack of paper about an inch thick, um, Mm -hmm. learning about the background of, Uh, my little client and his family, particularly his mother. Um, So yeah, I just, I, you know, the training told me to figure out as much as I could about my client, where he's been, where he is. And, you know, we don't know quite yet where he'll go, but um, the objective of the Guardian Ad Litem Program, the CASA Minnesota Program, Court Appointed Special Advocacy, um, is always reunification with the family. And the space is the guardian ad litem. Well, I should say, everyone cares about the child. But in my work, I communicate, in my volunteer work, I communicate with social workers, um, everyone in my child's life, um, teachers, therapists, parents, friends, Any, however I can get information. Um, and the social worker does provide services to the children, but they are really about providing services for the parents to get us all down the road of reunification. Um, so for my, this, you know, talking about the case that I had 10 years ago, um, you know, the, the county or the social workers are, um, putting together a case plan for, um, it was mostly mom that was involved, a 16 year old mom, no chemical dependency, which is, mm-hmm. that's the only case in my, in my volunteer career, that chemical dependency has not been, um, if not the number one issue uh, issue at least. Um, but she had severe mental health issues. So lots of resources, lots of services. Um, and that case, um, And actually coming back to your question, when you become a volunteer guardian ad litem, they ask for a 18-month commitment. Um, My shortest case has been maybe about five, six months. My longest case has been over three years. So I knew I was at least going to be in it for 18 months. Um, My first case ended up being about just under three years long from start to finish. So from the beginning, I just, I knew I, what I needed to do as a guardian ad litem is find out as much about my little client as I could and be in communication with the other parties of the case. That is the County, uh, the judge, um, parents, attorneys, and myself.
1: So, Oh, in your time doing this, what's been the hardest part about it? Like the most challenging aspect of it?
0: Well, I'll just straight up say volunteer guardian ed litem work is um, in my 35 years on this planet, one of, if not the most challenging and rewarding things I've ever spent time doing. Hmm. There are challenges in every case, every um, every family, every situation brings different challenges. The most challenging um, happened not my, with not my current case, but the prior case, which I actually had twice because the kids came in and then they were reunified with their mother. Um, and then the kids came back in about nine months later so all in, I had known these kids almost their whole. I mean, five mm-hmm. for five years. The, the youngest I've known is his whole life, um, and without getting into the details, the most yeah. challenging piece of it all was a hearing where we were determining um, placement for these three siblings. Three siblings. One mom, two dads. And in Minnesota, the statutes state that siblings are to be placed together. And the statutes state that siblings are to be placed with kin or relatives. Well, I couldn't find the county. That's the county's responsibility. Could not find a relative to take all three kids. And... um, so the older two were going to go with a um, paternal grandmother, and the youngest was going to stay with an adoptive um, mom and dad. Set of set of a couple, and I wanted the kids to stay together. I wanted them all to be with the adoptive family, with the yeah. I'm sorry the foster family. And um, the judge, looking at both of these statutes, you know, could not with all the facts, and this is, I mean, this is two two years into the case, okay, Um, could not order with both statutes in mind because there was not a placement that would, that was a kin relative placement that would have all three children. Hmm. And the judge ruled to separate them, to place the older two with family and keep the younger one with the foster family And, uh, that was, that was pretty brutal. Um, that was, that was a tear streaming down my face in the courtroom day. Yeah, never, I've never had one like it. Um, I just could not believe that that's what was in the best interest of the children. So that was, that was tough. That was challenging.
1: What's the emotional toll on the children? You know, when you're talking to them, obviously not naming anybody and things of that nature, but just in general, what are some of the thoughts and feelings that the children have about the process?
0: So I have never had a child over the age of seven. Okay. And there are so many kids out there. There are so many cases. You could honestly say, I want a eight month old boy that lives in, you know, South Minneapolis, and you have the choice of 20 families to work with. Um, I have chosen to work with younger kiddos, which obviously limits their ability to verbalize what's going on. Um, But, you know, reflecting back on training, and my dad, who is also a volunteer guardian ad litem, which I think is amazing you know he's a that's full-time cool. financial advisor he's almost 70 and he he just saw the work I was doing was totally moved and and became one himself so wow. so so proud of him for that that's just that warms my heart um but he has he has uh, teenage boys, and um so I'll just speak to my own experience um you know I'm I'm not their friend, but I need to be a trusted. You know, I'm to stay relatively objective. Okay, and this is a heart bit. This is a heart situation. So, (laughs) there's definitely um, some. You know, there's not a fine line. There's not a you know clear line in the sand. Um, But I really I need to be approachable. So I need to develop a relationship with these kids so that they can share with me. And of course, I'm looking for red flags. I want to know, you know, if they've been injured, if they've been hurt, because, so I have to see them once a month, which is particularly frightening right now, because we're not having any home visits.
1: So, you know,
0: right now, if you're listening to this later, we're um, May 19, 2020, in the middle of the coronavirus, COVID-19, and obviously no home visits. So that's, I mean, we're going to be feeling the effects of this from a, um, abuse and child protection standpoint for years. Um, but, uh, it's really, it can be hard. It can be hard for these kids. You know, they, even if they've been physically abused, emotionally abused, they love their parents. They love their parents and they want to be with their parents. And thankfully, it's not just, you know, me having this conversation, you know, hopefully they're seeing a therapist, you know, the social workers making her his or her visits. Um, So everyone in these kids lives are, are here to really just support them, hopefully. Um, But I have seen it be, I have seen it be challenging. I've seen kids personalities change depending who they're in front of. Um, And a lot of times they just want to go home to their parents, really, no matter what. What is it
1: about that if they're in situations where the parents, it may not be a healthy situation, the parent and child, that the child still wants to be around the parent? Okay. So what's the
0: question in there? Essentially,
1: children seem to uh, be so pliable in the sense, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I maybe I'm missing misrepren- representing this because I'm thinking about how children have the capacity to love uh, other people, even when they're not treated well by those people.
0: Mm, mm-hmm.
1: And how kids—I'm interested, in kind of the kids' mind state if they want to go back to parents who are not treating them well. Yeah.
0: Well, I think it's—I'm um, just going to speak from experience because I don't—I don't, you know, have child psychology education, but, um, you know, I know that, that children thrive in a routine, even if it's an unhealthy one. Um, you know, there's just because a parent is getting high in a room and someone finds out and calls the police, you know, that child doesn't necessarily know that they're being parented by a high parent. Mm -hmm. So if it's not, if it's not physical abuse, or worse um, it's, they still, they just, they want to be with their parents.
1: Um,
0: And more off my cases more often have been around um, actually not physical abuse per se, um, but more so parenting while under the influence. Mm -hmm. bringing people who shouldn't be in the home in the home. And then, you know, there might be physical altercation between adults and the kids are around, um, or, you know, driving when they shouldn't be driving because they're impaired mm-hmm. and that is obviously a, a physical risk. Um, but the kids don't, al- the, the kids don't always know. Um, and I'm careful to, to remind them that their parents love them, but I'm not there to tell them why they're, out of their parents' home. Um, I'm, right. I'm, I'm there to gather information, make sure that they are physically safe wherever they are, if they're in a foster home, if they're, you know, with a, with a relative, um, and just remind them that their parents love them but that it's not safe for them to be with them right now.
1: Now, you said you worked with the younger children, like seven you know, below what was the decision-making process and working with younger kids versus older ones, say like teenagers?
0: Yeah, I think it came from, so the first case was just assigned to us. And like Mm -hmm. I said, my, the mom was 16 and I found that challenging. Now she did have, like I mentioned, a really severe mental health disorder. Um, But I just, I mean, I was only 25 to start and I think I just, I wanted to work with younger kids and I just don't know, like reflecting on that question now, I'm not sure I have the, maybe I do, who knows, I don't, I I don't feel like I have the, like I could serve an older child as well as I can serve a younger kid. And I think that's, you know, knowing, knowing my limitations, knowing how I'm going to do this volunteer work as best as I can. And there are more younger kids than there are older. And the older kids need, oh my gosh, do they need advocacy? I'm just not sure I'm the one to do it. Gotcha. Like
1: no, that makes sense. It sounds like you were like very honest with yourself and what you were able to handle or what you you know desired to do uh, mm-hmm. with that. Do you think that's, and a, I think is that's it a common it is. thing? Is it hard to work with teenagers for a lot of people versus the little kids?
0: Well, I don't know about you, but I was a terrible teenager. So I <laughs> mean. <laughs> I was
1: a very good teenager. See, I was a goody two shoes. Uh, so I had a great experience being a teenager.
0: Oh, heck no. I was rebellious. I ran away from home. I was like, I was naughty um yeah. so you know I guess I just I would like to get a hug from my guardian client not some other physical painful response which can yeah. happen um yeah I guess it's a, it's the more semblance of control I think is probably what it is and in a space where there's just not a lot you can depend on I think me choosing to work with younger kids is um, kind of some semblance of of control, and just really knowing what I'm, what I know that I'm good at.
1: Yeah. Oh, it makes it makes a lot of sense. I was just curious, you know. Um, yeah, that's a great question. It's kind of like, you know, I think I had mentioned to you that we adopted our daughter um, in our previous call. And we started talking about adoption and stuff, and you know, some people they want newborns. Like that's Mm -hmm. all they want. And some people, they have a heart for wanting like maybe older kids, six, seven years old, or even people who are like, Hey, I'll take somebody who's considerably older and try to help them in their lives. And I think it's kind of important just, you know, to understand the different motivations for people and that they're all take different special people to do work with different ages of children. You know, it's, they all have their challenges uh, with it whether it's a newborn or a six-year-old or a 15-year-old, you know, for that. So I just was finding it interesting, like, what was your reasoning for working with kids that were that age? And I find it, like, what was the, what's been the most gratifying part of of doing this in this time for you?
0: Well, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot. I think, um, you know, my first case he was adopted by his foster family and shoot he's like 10 years old now (laughs) and he has a completely different life right i mean he's got right and um that's that's amazing to have been a part of um i think sometimes as the guardian ad litem or really any any one in this space. Um, if foster, or if, um, biological parents have never been in the system or if they've been in the system and they've had a poor experience, you know, they're very defensive. They're very, why are you here? And I get it. I, and I absolutely get it. Um, I did have one mom, um, biological mom who, who did have her child, her situation was, um, she was holding her son and her boyfriend pushed them down the stairs and they were injured, but they were removed from his house. And she, he was the, um, the client, the the child was assigned a guardian ad litem myself, um, to make sure that, you know, he was safe and the county was supporting mom in making safe choices and, and providing safety for her children going forward. Um, but when I met mom, she was like, What are you doing in my space? Who are you? Mm. You know, what's, what is this all about? And I am so grateful that God blessed me with a really great like EQ. (laughs) I I can just, I just know when people are uncomfortable. I know when people are open. Um, And I'm grateful that I have that. And that's served me well in this space, um, dealing with different types of humanity, um, yep. but she, she didn't like me. She didn't like me at all. And I have to say, was you know, you're not supposed to take anything personally, but I was a little hurt by that. <laughs> it was my first yeah. experience like that. Um, but I'll tell you about two years after that case had closed, she um, reached out to me. My, my um, Facebook account is public. I've chosen to do that for my wellness business. So she found me quite simply because my maiden name was very unique and um, sent me a message saying that she was sorry for treating me that way. And it eventually did get better in person. But here in this message, she was saying um, that she just didn't, you know, she felt like I was in her business and she didn't know, but that she was really grateful for the stand that I took for her son the stand that I took for her, and she sent me photos of, of the child and just said, you know, that I made a really big difference for him, for her, for their family, and she'll never forget me.
1: That's really nice.
0: So That's when really I work nice. with kids who can't verbalize, you know, there are there's still people that I get to connect with. They're still, you know, I still get to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly—everything in between. So that was um, that was pretty wonderful.
1: So, where do you see this work going for you in the future? Like, I mean, you've been doing it ten years now. What's the vision for the future of this work for you?
0: Yeah. So, I, my last case ended um, in an adoption in September, and um, I only ever. Usually take one case at a time. Um, Like I said, I'm you know I've got a full time wellness business. I teach yoga. I'm kind of part time, and obviously have a family. And I have chosen to take one case at a time. Um, That said, after a case is over, especially one as emotionally draining as the last one I had, um, I took a couple months off, and it worked out. It was the holidays, and um, but really. Even though this is really stinking hard and it's challenging work, like I said, it is rewarding. And because I know how vast the need is only in my own community, I'm not sure I'll ever go, you know, a season in life without being in child advocacy work. I just don't think that I can know what's there and that there is something that I can do, and not do it. So, and that's actually how I got to be on the board for the state of Minnesota is because it's kind of an interesting story. If you, I'm not sure if I shared it with you when we first connected. Um, this was like four years ago. I was single and dating, and you know, you're getting to know people. And I shared that I was a volunteer guardian at Lightum, and all these dudes, all these guys, had no idea what that was. Yeah, and. I just, I was like, you know, I I knew there was a point in my life where I didn't know what that was, but it's such a big part of my life now that I was just like, gosh, no one, none of these guys know. So, um, I started wanting to have informational meetings and if you've ever been a part of a nonprofit, you know, that if you show any sign of leadership, they want you on the board. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, for the last a little over three years, um, I hold biannually because the training occurs twice a year. So right before training, a month or so before training here in Minnesota, um, I hold informational meetings. And it's really just word of mouth, um, you know, social media. But, you know, there's probably 20 people that show up. And that is, um, that's kind of my space within the board is information and recruitment. I mean, I could talk about guarding that light on work for a long, long time. Um, and so it would be great if there was someone else who could, who could, uh, you know, be doing this with me. Right now, there's not really here. Um, and in fact, I'm actually the only, Volunteer guardian ad litem, except for um, the president, who is on the board. Other, otherwise, it's just you know different people with different skill sets that wanted to help the organization. Um, so yeah, I think I think being on the board and that rec- you know information and recruitment capacity is an incredible form of contribution to the kids, to the community, to the organization. And uh, I wish there was more more of that happening. Um, but I think I'll, I think, you know, I'll keep doing that. And like I said, I don't think there'll ever be a full season in my life as long as I am able to leave my house physically well, where I won't, um, at least have one case.
1: That's awesome. I mean, how do you think that, um, this has changed your life doing this work and all aspects of your life, um, personal, mm. professional, how is it kind of those tentacles you know, gone into all parts of your life?
0: Yeah. Um, well, certainly on a surface level offered me quite a bit of perspective that I didn't have before. Um, just awareness, um, you know, that, that doesn't leave you, even though I'm not constantly working in my volunteer capacity, um, just having a respect for people who are different. Um, cause you just don't know how they got there and they certainly don't need your disrespect added onto it. Right. Um, so yeah, just a really, um, understanding of humanity that I didn't have before, um, In my business, I'm in a connecting business. You know, people, people choose to improve their health or bring in a second stream of income for their families because they can connect with me and they feel supported and they feel um, both a sense of leadership and a sense of service. And I think, I think, you know, part of that skill set that I have was developed in training to be, and, and performing as a volunteer guardian ad litem. Um, also, um, let's go a little bit along with differences of people, but just, you know, I don't have the fear of difference that I may, that I may have had before. Um, my level of courage and boldness has increased. Hmm. Um, because you know there's some uncomfortable situations, but guess what? It's not about me. It's about the kids, and uh, that's what advocacy work is. <laughs> um, it's it's putting putting your you know fears aside and caring, actively being compassionate, and advocating for someone else. Um, I think of our own family. We got married last year and, you know, want to expand our family, bring kiddos in. And, um, I don't know what that will all entail and look like, but I'm certainly, um, not against adopting. I don't know if it would happen in child protection. I don't, you know, I don't know how that will turn out, but, um, certainly have a new respect and understanding for people who do adopt no matter what the circumstances, no matter, you know, where the, where the kids came from or the reasoning for the family. Um, But just to open your home to a human being that you are not blood related to Mm
1: -hmm. that
0: you love, you know, as if they were absolutely your own from the beginning. That really moves me.
1: I tell you what it's, It has certainly moved my life. Um, Sometimes I have uh, my daughter do like the intros to the podcast or she does the outro Mm -hmm. to all of the podcasts and everybody loves hearing her little baby sounding voice. She's eight. Mm -hmm. And uh, I look at her and I think that's such a miracle, you know, and Mm -hmm. I think about meeting her birth mother. We met her birth mother in a tiny room at Catholic Charities and she was pregnant with Rosie about eight months along, you know, and I think about all the emotion and the time invested and, you know, making this plan for this baby that we were gonna adopt this child mm-hmm. and, and that the biology wasn't important to us. It was just having an exper- that experience and helping to change the life, the, the generation, generational change for this child And to break the cycle of what uh, their family was going through for Mm. that, never forget, never forget on the that the birth mother wrote the reason why she wanted to place Rosie for adoption when she was born is because she didn't want her child to grow up in poverty. Yeah, and she wanted her child to have a shot at a good life, and she picked us. And I think adoption's amazing. It's incredible. And I think sometimes when people say, well, when I want to have a child that is like my own child. And I will tell you, having an adopted child, you will not know the difference. <laughs> you will just know love. You will know love. You will know amazing love. Okay. The child will know that love. The biology will not be the difference. I promise you. It will not change how you feel about the thing at all. It creates a different layer of love, an added story, an element. So, you know, when you were talking to me about the child advocacy work and stuff, it just really hit me because I have a special respect for people like yourselves and what you do, Monica. So I'm grateful to know someone like you.
0: Well, likewise, and thank you. Um, and I just have to, I don't know if you were going to ask me this question, but I'm just going to answer it anyway. Um, <laughs> You know, I don't know what the point is of sharing something without having an opportunity for for people to look this up for your own life or someone that you Mm -hmm. know. Um, So what I would do is if you're listening to this and if you, um, it's a time commitment. The question I usually get asked is how long, you know, what is the time commitment? And I always answer on average, it's about five to 10 hours a month, um, depending on the case and the situation and geography and you know, how many kids there are, but about five to 10 hours a month to, you know, impact a human life, if not more, if there are siblings. Um, You do not need to have any legal experience. Um, There is, at least in Minnesota, there's an application, there's a um, interview, there'll be a background check. um, But, you know, what they're looking for is, are you a compassionate human being? Do you have a sense of fierce advocacy? Are you, you know, organization certainly helps, um, but you know, are you, there's, there's not a, an experience. And even if I've got, you know, pediatricians who've who've taken my educational or my informational meetings who are like, I know everything about kids. Do I have to take the training? Yeah, you do. (laughs) Everyone, (laughs) Everyone takes the training. Um, you know, what your, again, what your background is does not matter. What matters are, you know, the the, the heart characteristics that you're going to bring to this work and to these families, these kids. Um, and, you know, wherever you are, every single state in the United States of America has a guardian ad litem or CASA, uh, court-appointed special advocacy program. Um, It's a it's a court appointed position. Every child in child protection um, needs a guardian ad litem. And I'm talking juvenile court um, when kids have been abused or neglected specifically. And um, I would just Google your state and either guardian ad litem. And that's the word guardian and then A.D. and then L.I.T.E.M. Or court appointed special advocate and your state. And something will come up. (laughs) One of the, (laughs) one of the first sites or um, the national website is nationalcasagal.org. So national C-A-S-A-G-A-L.org. And that would be a good place to start too. And really, I just would say like, if you are if someone's listening right now and we haven't, we haven't covered everything, you know, Darian, Dr. Darnie has asked great questions. We haven't covered everything, but um, this isn't something that you have to know all the details about. If your heart is telling you that this is a place that you want to serve, um, shoot, I'd lean into it. I'd, I'd get, you know, get a hold of the resources that you need to do to get the ball rolling because there are a lot of kids out there who need advocacy and it's not for everyone. But if you have an inkling that you think it's for you, I would lean into it and you know, just see the level of contribution that, that you get to have um, one kid at a time, which makes a difference in this whole world.
1: I mean, well said and amen to that for sure. I mean, thank you, Monica, so much for your compassion, your kindness, I sense it completely listening to you. You know, that's one of my favorite things about this podcast It's just listening to different stories, different passions, the effort people provide in different areas of life that they're completely into and have a heart for. And you certainly have a great heart for this. And I can relate on my level in terms of going through the adoptive process for my daughter and being around amazing social workers and people are advocates for children in different environments. So... Um, thank you so much for being on the show, and I look forward for to people hearing this. Uh, it's a really important cause, I think.
0: Good, me too. Thank you for having me, and thanks for thanks for hearing the message. You got it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the rate and review section. Thanks, everyone. There's a reason Comcast Business powers more businesses than any other provider. Actually, there's a few. Comcast Business offers the fastest reliable network and the peace of mind that comes with Security Edge, helping to protect all your connected devices. Want me to keep going? I can. Whether your small business is starting or growing, you need Comcast Business. Technology solutions to put you ahead and give you serious savings. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities.
1: Restrictions apply.
0: Sure, we have 30 seconds to tell you that drivers who switch to progressive could save big. But then what? Well, there is a nice piece of stock music playing behind me that a talented composer worked really hard on. So let's enjoy it. Wow. Almost overshadows the saving big when you switch to progressive part. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates.